your positive, positive, positive imprint. Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready. For your positive imprint. December is a month full of celebrations and traditions all over the world. Many of these festivities include food and lots of it. This is Catherine, your host of the Variety Show podcast, Your Positive Imprint. It's been so much fun doing this mini-series on technology and farming. You and I have learned about glass blowing from bicycle glass and the penguin chill with IDM's educational technology and Andrew Bracken's farming programs in Africa. Permaculture practices were shared by Sigrid Drage of Austria. Well, this episode in this mini-series features Christine Deck of Deck Family Farms. Deck Family Farm practices a long-term approach in developing a sustainable livestock operation. Christine shares their model that can be replicated and one that does not harm the planet. I am here with Christine Deck of Deck Family Farms in Willamette, Oregon, well, Willamette Valley, Oregon, in United States. Christine, hello. Hello. (laughs) How are you today? Doing great, yeah. First, let's talk about Deck Family Farm and how that came about. Well, let's see. We've been around for 15 years. I grew up in farming in the San Joaquin Valley of California, and my husband's family farmed the Santa Clara Valley of California, which is now Silicon Valley. What my family did was a lot of what we're doing right now, a diverse operation of beef and lamb and pork and chicken, kind of an older, you know, an older integrated style farm. It wasn't a money-making endeavor. I grew up, you know, after Many, many farmers lost their ability to make a living farming in the 40s. So my grandparents kind of experienced that where they couldn't make a living farming, but they continued farming anyway in their blood, I guess. When my husband, John, and I decided we wanted to farm, I think it was in our mind that we better have really good jobs so we could afford to farm the way we wanted. We never intended to do large industrial farming. We always wanted to do kind of more smaller scale, environmentally and humane focused So in our mind, we had to have other jobs to do that, to make that happen. It turns out, actually, that there's enough interest nowadays in the kind of farming that we do that we are able to make a living at it. But that wasn't clear 15, 20 years ago. I want to go to something you said. You were talking about your your parents. Was it your parents in the 40s? Well, my grandparents. Your grandparents. Long line of farmers. Everybody was farming. But, you know, Earl Butts, the Secretary of Agriculture in the 40s, the motto was get big or get out. You know, we, the U.S. wanted to feed the world. It was, you know, the beginning of Monsanto and just agribusiness. So anybody that wasn't on scale lost their ability to farm as a living. That's what I wanted to go to because we don't know the history of the breaking up of family farming and movement into factory farming because we often think that that is happening within our own generation when it actually happened generations prior to even you know today and you seem to know a little bit of this history so can you kind of go over that a little bit more in depth sure and I only have I only know from personal experience I'm not trained or you know I haven't studied the history of farming or agriculture I only know from my personal experience so my maternal grandfather was a dairyman in Wisconsin and my paternal grandfather was he raised beef and walnuts in the San Joaquin Valley of California And both of those families in the 40s stopped farming um, as as a main source of income. They both grandparents had to get other jobs in order to pay the bills. 
And it was about that time that in the U.S. the policy was get big or get out. So you either became a larger kind of agribusiness farm, any kind of small family farms just kind of, it was a lot harder to make a living and survive in just kind of a, a more modernized economy. That happened in the 40s. It also happened again in the 80s. I don't know how many, like if you could remember farm aid, but there was like a big push in the 80s too to try to save a lot of farmers who are going into debt because they had brought out more debt than they could pay off again because prices were pretty low. People couldn't make money off their crops. I think NAFTA had a lot to do with that as well. And, um, and just so there was even more of a loss of family farms. So I, I don't even, I hope all that's historically correct. That's the story. I know that's the story I've heard told through my family and that just kind of culminated. And I think a lot of other people think this way too, that if you want to farm in a way that is kind of low impact and modern, moderately scaled, enough scaled to, you know, build some economy of scale, but not to the fact where your animals are now just production units. If people want to farm in that way, an environmentally conscious way, I think, well, I, I've heard the number, something like 90% of small farms, so farms that are making less than $200,000 a year, 90% of those farms, one of the farm partners has to have a full-time job. So that's not really a farming economy in my mind. That's a, I, it's just not a farming economy. You can't do a good job farming where one of your major partners isn't even there half the time. That's, that's a lot. So the way that we've kind of built success is just we work with a lot of dedicated people who are kind of dedicated to the cause of bringing healthy, nutrient-dense food to market. So the people that work at Deck Family Farm, they definitely have a buy-in to what we're doing. And that's how we're able to make it work. What's the philosophy? What are the practices on Deck Family Farm that allow for that buy-in? Yeah, so sustainability on all levels. So both environmental and financial. So, you know, not only do we have to be environmentally conscious, but we also have to be able to pay the bills. Humane handling. The people that work here are really learning about the care of animals. Again, they're not production units. They're sentient beings that um, have feelings and need a level of care. And then environmental, low environmental impact. So Deck Family Farm has planted over 100,000 trees since we've been here. Wow. Fenced, yeah, a lot of trees. We fenced off a mile of riparian corridor. We've put in nutrient management plans so that, you know, we have a lot of manure here. There's a lot of animals, but all that is going right back on the soil. So we're building really good organic matter. Deck Family Farm has a humane handling certification. So we're certified by third-party sources. Humane handling, also a grass-fed association certification and an organic certification. So we're pretty transparent in our practices. We're inviting third parties to come in and verify what we do. We're not just asking the customer to believe what we say. So to summarize, I guess it would be environmental stewardship, humane handling, transparency, and sustainability, both environmentally and monetarily. I love that. So That's... we try to be good business owners sure. in addition to all that. Absolutely. Yeah. You have a great mission, a great vision, a great positive imprint not just for the people that are working for you, whom you're talking about with having this buy-in, but also the environment. And you were talking about the animals having feelings. And so them too, even though you know they're going to be going to market at some point, this is all absolutely wonderful. And I, I like hearing these words because they were things that I was going to be asking you. Because when I go to the grocery store, I see on my egg cartons, I will see, I always buy the ones that say, 
Humane Certified. I don't know what that means, but as a consumer, it sounded good. <laughs> That's awful that I did. And I've been meaning to look it up. I just got so busy and I just kept forgetting. So now I have you and you can tell me what it means. Humane Certified. Yeah. So um, I think it's great that you're looking for a certification. Um, I think that if you're buying a product from a farm that you've never been to, a certification really matters. I, I do. Like, well, anybody could buy a certification or maybe some certifications matter more than others, but at least it's one step that you as a, as a, I'm not going to call you a consumer because I hate that word. I think it's a terrible label to place on anybody who's trying to do right by the environment. So as a, as a customer of the farm, I'm glad you're looking for a certified label. So humane certified would vary from certifier to certifier, but in my experience, it would definitely have the principles of plenty of fresh air, plenty of open area to move about and somewhat mimic what would be in a natural environment. I mean, we're talking about chickens. Okay. Chickens don't survive in the wild. They're not like a, you know, they are a farm, they're an agricultural animal, but still my guess is that, you know, and I'm not sure which certification you're buying. I mean, there's several, right? There's animal welfare approved, there's food alliance, there's GAP, which is our certification, good animal practices. There's, you know, several certifications, but I would guess that most of the certifications are just looking after the welfare of the animal. Is the animal healthy, happy, breathing fresh air, eating what would be, you know, a, kind of a more of a range diet? That that would be what I would hope <laughs> is what those hens that are laying those eggs that you're buying are experiencing if they have it, if their farmer has received a humane handling certification. Does that help? Yes, it does. I mean, I knew it was something positive. Yeah. <laughs> just, and you, you know, and, and you hear stories that, oh, just because it's marked with the certification doesn't mean it's really like we hear these horror stories about it's really not organic. It's marked organic, but it's really not. And I'm not looking for 100% organic. I'm looking for something that I'm going to eat where I'm not going to be polluted with toxins. You know, I want something clean. And so I use the Environmental Working Group, EWG. We donate to them because they do lots of different research. And then we have the Clean 15, no, the Clean, what is it, the Dozen? Now I can't even remember. I have to look at my app. The Clean 15, the Dirty Dozen, that's what it is. Clean 15, Dirty Dozen. And I'll always look, now that's not eggs, it's produce. And I always look at my app to see what's happening because some people say, well, once you see the clean 15, then that's what you abide by the rest of the year. But that's not true because we have different countries that are producing different products at different times of the year. And some are using pesticides, some aren't, and so on. So I use that app to help guide me with what can I eat today at market as far as produce goes? I, I think it's great you're using some sort of third-party reference. And I know I've heard this too from people that say, well, that certification doesn't matter. And, you know, that certification or this. But honestly, and I feel like I was kind of one of those people at one time too. Like when the USDA came out with an organic certification, I a little bit rolled my eyes because I'm like, okay, now anybody's going to be organic certified. It's re really bringing down the standard. But I've kind of changed my mind about that, and here's why. you got to trust something. And 
I don't know. I mean, I just feel like a third party certification is better than nothing unless you can actually know your farmer and go and visit. And that's the best. I mean, that's the absolute best if you know your farmer and you're actually visiting your farm and seeing for your own eyes what's going on. I think that's a penultimate, you know, approach, but it's not realistic for most people. So I really do believe that the third party certifications matter. And it sounds like those those references, Environmental Working Group and Clean 15 Dirty Dozen are, are doing their due diligence by checking things out. There's another one specific to eggs called Cornucopia Institute. Um, and I think that comes out of Oregon, but that's a good way to reference, you know, who who's doing a good job raising laying hens and producing eggs. Ah, wonderful for could that. I, Thank you for that. Yeah, could I just say one more thing about Abs- how you oh, know you're- absolutely. You're concerned about um, what your animals are eating and how that's going to pollute your body. Like you want to eat really pure. And that would be less humane handling and more organic certified and, and pastured. The thing is, is that in protein and fat is where the most toxins are stored. And so what your animals are eating is has a pretty big impact on what your body's intaking. So even though I definitely think humane handling is super, super important, for someone like you who's really concerned about toxins accumulating, you want to look for an organic label as well. Okay. And so let's talk about that. Let's go into your your labels because those are the ones that you know. You've mentioned the GAP, Good Animal pro- uh, Practices. Animal Practices, yeah. Those are just for the chickens? No, our GAP certification is actually for our pork and the GAP certification is a requirement to sell to Whole Foods markets because our pork goes to Whole Foods. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, a farmer also has to be 100% behind third-party certifications. I, I definitely still firmly believe that. But you do have to be careful on what certifications are going to pay off in a way because we're not going to be GAP certified for all the enterprises that we're not selling Whole Foods because that GAP certification costs over $2,000 a year. Wow. So if, yeah, if it's not, and that's just that particular certification, our AGA this year was 800. Our organic certification is over 2000. So these certifications are not cheap. Um, I still believe in them. And, but the thing is like, for instance, for our organic, I hope I'm not getting too far off topic, but no, this is good. Okay, so for what I'm trying to illustrate here, I'll just back up and give it a, I'm trying to illustrate how as a farmer to be financially solvent, we need to be careful about which certifications we get. Because if we can't recoup the price of the certification and the selling price, it doesn't make sense for us to do it. So as an example, our entire farm is certified organic as far as forage. So every single blade of grass we're growing here and hay we're cutting is certified organic. However, we have a dairy that's not certified organic, which means that those cows aren't eating everything certified organic all year round because we do give them a little bit of grain in the parlor at milking. Now, why don't we certify them organic? Because that grain costs us $400 a ton conventional. If it was organic, it costs us $1,000 a ton. Can we make that back when we sell the milk? No. And we know that. So that's why we choose not to certify that organic. So two enterprise, and I'll wrap it up. Two no, no, no. Here. This is... Christine, this okay. is really interesting. Okay, I just don't want to get too far afield. But the laying hens and the beef here, those are two enterprises that are certified organic. And we definitely recoup the cost of our certification in those enterprises because people are willing to pay for that. Our clients and customers of Deck Family Farm, they are willing to pay the price 
for a perfectly clean organic product in the beef and the chicken and we will do it if our customers were willing to pay that price in meat birds because we also raise meat birds if people were willing to pay the price for organic certified meat birds we do that too but we found out that they didn't they won't so a couple years ago our all our meat birds were certified organic we could not recoup the cost so it's really a it's such a relationship between the buyer and the seller what the seller could do the seller being the farmer and the buyer being the client or the customer the customer dictates so much of what a farmer can do most farmers at least for us want to be good farmers but if they can't sell the product at the level of which they want to operate then you can't do it you need the support of your of your community and i would like to, and you're right you are very right and i want to go backwards again to organic and your organic cows is it the so what it means to be organic is that the cow is fed everything organic exactly every single thing and when the cow was inside its mom in the last trimester everything there had to be certified organic too so that means nothing that's not organic passes that animal's lips it's different than products that you buy organic which i think like you know 85 percent of the ingredients have to be organic in an animal 100 percent of everything that goes in an animal must be organic and that goes right down to like the mineral mix everything oh my goodness as a point of reference you know you could look at as a general rule of thumb conventional feed non-organic is half the price of organic feed and another number I'll throw at you is that 80% of raising animals is the feed. 80% of the cost is feed. So you can see how that really amplifies. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, so the same for, you said the chickens are certified mm -hmm. organic. So whatever they eat is organic. Now let's talk about the grass fed. I don't eat beef. It's a really wild story it's, it's wacky it's it's weird but I get really bad stomach aches from beef unless it's beef that is grass-fed and doesn't have any of the antibiotics or hormones injected into the meat and because I I have reactions to antibiotics anyway well so what is what is it grass-fed that's just no grain right yeah, simply put, yeah, there's no grain or grain byproducts given to the animals, but it really has so much more meaning because in order to get a, a, a cow fat and appropriate to slaughter, in other words, enough meat and fat on their bones, it takes a lot of skill. So grass-fed is more than that. You also are a really good forage manager. You're growing the kind of forage that is going to fatten an animal within a reasonable amount of time. You need to have plenty of ground to do it. They can't just be locked up on a feedlot getting fat. And hopefully your grass-fed provider is also organic because if they're spraying chemical pesticides and herbicides on the grass, that's probably also not so great. So you want to look for grass-fed beef, but ideally it's organic grass-fed beef. And the difference between that would be in organic producers not using pesticides and herbicides to grow the forage. Whereas if you're not certified organic, you can. So there's residue, chemical residue. This is this is really educational and interesting. I'm really glad I'm talking to you about all of this because it it broadens my understanding and of course the listeners, it definitely broadens their understanding as well. And I certainly appreciate this. And now with your other certification, you have 
your humane handling, and we talked about that. What is considered humane handling when you're talking about your gap? Yeah, so animals need enough space to roam and to forage freely. So basically, they're not being confined in small spaces. So our pork have acres to run on. I mean, we're moving them across the acreage, but they're just free to run. And this is why most pork, like commercial pork, would take five months to finish because they're kind of locked in these really small pens and they get fat really fast. Deck pork takes seven months to finish because they're just running around all the time. So it takes a little bit more time to put fat on them. But when the fat does come in, when they are ready, they're delicious. Not only, you know, having enough space, but also we have a breeding program. So in most commercial hog operations, the sow is confined from a month previous to farrow till a month after, not quite a month, probably several weeks after, where she can't move because otherwise she'll crush the babies, which is a real consideration, by the way, sows do crush their babies. But in our operation, contrasted to a non-certified humane handling operation, we don't use farrowing crates. So we're not restraining the sow to the point where she just can't move. All she does is lay there and nurse babies. Our sows are getting up, moving around. There's plenty of room in their pen. There's plenty of room for interaction between her and her piglets. And so that's another difference with a humane certification. The way you handle the animals, there's no poking or prodding or yelling. We have a program. We have an intern program here at Deccan. The first thing that I teach interns when they come to the farm is we don't vocalize. We just use our thoughts to move the animals. And I don't want that to come off sounding really wacky because obviously we're not just sitting there looking at them and thinking and expecting they read our minds. But the point is, is that animals do have another way of communicating. And if you can move your body and you can think about what you want them to do, you're a lot more successful. So it doesn't require yelling or hitting or prodding or whoop-de-whoop. It's a very quiet and calm atmosphere. So I've heard this saying before, and I don't know who said it, but it's a good one. There's only one bad day, and that's the last day. But up until that point, you know, a humane certified farm is doing everything they can to make the animal healthy and happy. And, of course, all those are projections, right? You know, we, we anthropomorphize. It's hard not to. But you also want to come to work and feel good about what you're doing. So we hope that the animals are comfortable, healthy, you're not being fed garbage or being fed good, solid, whole grains, certified organic when possible. Let's see, what else about humane handling? I think that kind of covers it. It's just about handling, pen size, birthing. Um, yeah, those are, those are kind of the main points. All right. And then you talked earlier about you move your animals from pasture to pasture. What's the terminology for that, the correct terminology? Well, management intensive grazing for ruminants, which is beef, cows, and sheep, um, what that means is that we are not just putting them in a big open lot and just letting them graze over and over and over again the same forage. We're growing forage, moving them in there, having them eat it, and moving them off as quick as possible or, you know, as appropriately as possible. So what that's doing is it's preventing the use of of wormers because they're not regrazing the same place where they grazed, you know, for 20 days so the parasites that lay eggs are not re-ingesting those eggs and getting a lot of so that's one advantage another advantage is when you're moving them that frequently from paddock to paddock all the rich yummy grasses and the less yummy the more less palatable grasses they're being forced to eat all of that so it's better for growing forage because if you leave an animal in the same paddock for 30 days, they're just going to keep going around and regrazing the sweet grass and regrazing the sweet grass. And what's going to happen is that the less sweet grass is going to outcompete it. 
So when you move them from paddock to paddock, they're kind of like mowing it in an even form. So not only is that better for growing pastures, but it's also better for flavor in the animal because they're getting a variety of grasses. And there's someone who's, you know, really popular. A lot of people have heard of Joel Salatin. He calls it salad bar beef because you kind of move them in, make them eat it, and move them out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's, That's funny. Cows are also not wild animals, but, you know, if you did look at grazing animals, that's their pattern too, right? They're not going back and regrazing what they grazed yesterday. They're constantly on the move. So it's a more natural way for them to graze as well. How many acres does does Deck Family Farm have? Deck Family Farm owns a, a little over 300 acres, about 50 of that is in forest and riparian corridors. Um, but we have a really strong market. So we also, we lease about another 300 acres in the Willamette Valley because we couldn't grow everything here. So we, we, we grow at other farms nearby too. What were your other certifications? American Grass-Fed is another certification we hold. And that's just a third-party certification that says, yeah, we're not just saying we raise animals on grass and forage only, avoiding grain byproducts, but they're coming in and inspecting and making sure that that's the case. So it's ruminants are really appropriate for just their, their physiology is appropriate for only eating grass. And so if you have an AGA certification, it's just saying, yes, we, we've seen this farm and we know that they're only feeding grass to ruminants. Okay. Now let's go to antibiotics. I have a question. We always hear about it's antibiotic free. Does that mean that if a, let's take a chicken, if a chicken injures its foot and it gets infected that they can't have any antibiotics or creams or anything? What, tell yeah. me what this so means. About treatment. Like what do you do for an animal who's ill? Are you prohibited from using antibiotics ever? Is that kind of your question? That's kind like, of my question. You, yeah, how do you treat a sick animal? I'll take the beef, for example. First of all, it's very rare for us ever to even have the need to give beef antibiotics. They're just very healthy animals. They're being raised on grass. We have not even needed to use antibiotic in five years for the beef. I'm going to give you an example of when we have used antibiotics on the beef. We had an animal that had a prolapsed uterus, and what that means is when she had her calf, the uterus came out after the calf. So it was a hard birth. It was a big calf and her uterus was on the ground. We gave that animal antibiotics because she's going to die if she didn't have them. When you have that much of your internal organs on the ground, it's just too much introduction to bacteria. So we gave her antibiotics, we stitched her up, we healed her, and we sold her in an auction as a non-organic animal. So once an animal's had antibiotics, you just can't sell them organic anymore. But it doesn't mean that, you know, they're wasted. I mean, we still recoup money on her. We sold her as a conventional animal. It's all good. And we did what we felt was humane. It wouldn't have been humane just to say, well, we're just going to let her die of an infection because she had, because she got sick. Does that make sense? It does. She could no longer be organic, but it's not like now no depth. Beef is organic. The rest of the herd could still be organic. This is such a huge enterprise because you do have <laughs> life that you have to deal with. Lives, many yeah. lives. How many cows? How many chickens? How many pigs? Ooh, okay, um, so deck finishes about 60 beef a year, about 300 pigs a year. About 6,000 meat birds a year, about three, one to 3,000 laying hens, you know, so we're producing eggs from that. 
and uh, we have a dairy. Well, that's it. In terms of production, that's it. Oh, and lamb, about 200 to 250 lamb a year. This is a large undertaking, but it's still yet a small farm. Yeah, there are not many farms that operate with that kind of diversity. And yeah, <laughs> it's true. But it does. it is scalable. It has scaled. But again, it's scalable in a way that's still human and animal centric. It's we don't have we're not buildings here with high rises of just pig 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 um, you know enclosure after pig enclosure. We raise animals in organic pastures. So all of those animals I just raised are raised are just mentioned are all raised on organic pastures. So it's larger than small. Yeah, it's smaller than super large. <laughs> and, and so. 15 to 20 employees, um, family members, uh, an intern program that's definitely part of making things run, but also here to learn. Yeah, tell me about the intern program because that's an amazing, super positive imprint because that's your large community outreach. Yeah, it super matters to me, the intern program. I just feel like we need an agricultural economy more than we do right now. I feel like we have a very, very limited agricultural economy, and I would like to see more young people farming. And more and more young people are saying, I reject the suburban urban lifestyle. This is, has no meaning for me. We've had 50 interns over the last 10 years, maybe eight to 10 years. And I'd say at least half of them came from cubicles somewhere. And they just said, I, I'm going to either die <laughs> or, <laughs> or make something of my life. And so when they intern, they're learning all about the farming. Have some of them gone on to have their own farm production? Many have gone on to have their own farm. Not as many as I'd like. I'd like to see 100%. <laughs> um, I'd say at least half the interns who graduate our program are either working on or owning farms that they had already owned and are working themselves or they've joined with other interns. We have five interns and two employees who started their farm. They call it the Deck Satellite Farm. <laughs> <laughs> and people are also networking and getting together with other people who share their ideologies and starting things but yeah i'd say about half the interns that leave here are in the farming industry in one way or another you're very knowledgeable on your craft on your animals on the well-being of them and i definitely am going to go on over to whole foods and check out deck family farm products over there and and I would like someday to visit your farm. I've, yeah, because you said visit your your farmer. And I think I'm going to try to do that here with that observation of what the farmers and what the workers are actually doing on that farm. That's great yeah. advice. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. And anything else that you wanted to add that I didn't ask? Because we kind of got into all the certifications oh. and there's probably a lot we missed. There was one thing that I wanted to mention, and you had brought up eggs and how you look for a humane label, and I recommended also looking for an organic label. I wanted to just clarify what free-range and pasture-raised means. That is great. Yeah, so when you look at an egg carton and it says free-range, that has very little, I think what it invokes is this idea that chickens are running happily across pastures and enjoying themselves but free range actually the the requirement is is that free range birds are raised in a building with access to outdoors which means doors are maybe open for part of the day or there's windows but those birds are actually highly confined 
often they have about a square foot per bird. So free range is that. And the word free range came because it used to be that a lot of people raised chickens in battery cages, which is far worse than free range. So you put one or two chickens in a, in a very, very small space about um, maybe a foot by a foot square, and they live their entire la- lives there to lay eggs. Their eggs come into this kind of um, cage-like funnel that funnels the eggs down to the end of these super, super large hen houses. Now, that style of raising has been outlawed. I think in California, you can't even do it anymore. And in Oregon, it just became a law as well. But that's how free range word came about. They're like, okay, well, let's differentiate ourselves between caged, uh, battery caged birds. I want to be clear that pasture raised, which is the way Deck Family Farm does it, means the animals are just out on pasture. They're not fenced in at all. They have hen houses that they go into at night, you know, to prevent predation because we have fox and wolf, or fox and coyote and cougars and skunks and everything likes chicken. So they do get put away at night. But in the day, they're out on pasture. I mean, they have 20 acres that they could roam. Now, they don't because they tend to stay really close to their trailers. But there is no, like, big building that they're just locked into. They're actually out in the pasture eating grass. And those trailers are moved twice a week, so they're constantly getting fresh grass. So I just want to differentiate those three different terms. There's battery cage, which nobody advertises because for obvious reasons. There's free range, which is meant to say, hey, we're not raising in battery cages. And then there's pasture raised. And there are really very few pasture raised eggs in the store. I mean, try to find them, but they're rare. And the reason why is because they're very expensive. Um, It's not a cheap way to raise food. It's the best way to raise food, but it's not cheap. You'll find it in Whole Foods. That's one place you'll find it. And other kind of co-op style health food stores. Um, but pasture raised is really what you're looking for. Pasture raised organic. Very interesting. As you're talking about this, I'm seeing all the chickens running around. I mean, I'm not really seeing it, but I'm seeing it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm in my house. Okay. <laughs> how do you how do you gather chickens up to get in so that they are safe at night? They just go. I oh, mean, they they're perch. They go. Yeah. Any chickens that don't go don't last long because they are eaten. We have all manner of predator here. Owls, eagles, hawks, skunk, raccoon, fox, coyote, cougar doesn't really, cougar doesn't get into the chickens. They do get the lamb, but they go away. They, they know where home is at night. So it's not hard. We just go out at dark and close everything up. Do you just write it off and say, you know, we lost a lamb? Yeah, we write it off. Wolves have just recently come into Oregon from Idaho and other places. And so if you lose animals due to a wolf kill, you can claim that. But wolves aren't even in the Willamette Valley. I don't think they've been here yet. They're just on the coast. But our biggest defense around predation is just putting animals away. That's that's how we mostly try to not have those losses is we just try to work with the natural wildlife. Most farmers, or at least the farmers I respect and certainly DEC, see ourselves as stewards of the land. We want all those animals in our ecosystem. We, we, have, we know it's healthy when there's eagles flying and owls at night and there's coyotes and, and cougars. I mean, all those things build a healthy ecosystem. So we don't want to eradicate them, but we just want to try to also protect our animals. So our best defense is just being careful and putting away the agricultural animals, keeping them safe from harm. I, I love Deck Family Farm. So I, <laughs> I really appreciate all of your honesty and everything that you're doing out there. Such a positive imprint and you're a sustainable farm. You're, you're amazing. Yay.
Yeah, Christine, this has really been enjoyable. (laughs) I so much appreciate your time. I'm sorry, I cut you off there. Say that again? Oh, no, no, I appreciate your interest. It's great. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Thank you again so much for joining Your Positive Imprint. Thanks. It was a pleasure. (laughs) Awesome series. This has just been an awesome series. Music by Chris Knoll. Learn more about Chris at chrisknoll.com. Next week, Julie Clough shares her positive imprints following the loss of two of her children. Follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and connect with me on LinkedIn. Sign up for email updates and leave positive feedback at yourpositiveimprint.com. Follow or subscribe to this podcast now. Thanks for listening to Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.?